Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. means like June and July, and summers have seemed to get shorter and shorter almost every year. And as a household with a teacher and four kids who are in school, uh, we, I think we would want a little bit of a longer summer if we could, like something like six months maybe? Six months? Sounds like a good time frame. I don't know who I need to talk to to get that done, but uh, maybe I'll pray about it. We'll figure that out. Uh, but anyway, we are starting a new series today. Our series is going to be on the parable of Je- uh, parables of Jesus. And I don't know how much you know about the parables of Jesus. Uh, if you have been in church for any amount of time, you've probably engaged with the parables of Jesus several times. Maybe you don't know very much about the parables at all. Maybe it's somewhat of a new idea to you. You do know that Jesus taught in parables, but you're not sure exactly what they are. I think no matter what our experience is with the parables, the same kinds of questions typically arise when we hear them. Questions like, why did Jesus teach in parables? Why not use kind of more plain language rather than tell these stories that have metaphors and all kinds of different images in them that can be difficult to understand? What was it that Jesus was trying to get across? What are the meanings of all of these different parables that we come across in the Gospels? And speaking of interpretation, how do we interpret these well and faithfully, especially because these were stories that were told 2,000 years ago and in many ways are designed to be Uh, impactful and instructive in our lives today. So what exactly do these have to do with us today? And so before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's talk about the parables in general. As we go through this series, I think it's important to know a few things about the parables as we begin here this morning. First, Jesus' parables are some of the most interesting parts of the Bible. On one level, they're very simple and accessible. A lot of them are just stories or examples from everyday life. Things about like seeds and plants and farming and farm animals and the relationship between a father and a son, everyday things. But at the same time, they also point to some of the greatest and most, uh, kind of the most mind-bending ideas and biggest ideas that any of us could think about or talk about. They have to do with things like God, spirituality, purpose of life, eternity, and salvation, right? The biggest topics that we could think about are encapsulated in these short stories or these short metaphors that incorporate everyday life. And they're all about these things because first and foremost, they're about the kingdom of God. And they're about the implication of what happens when the kingdom of God arrives in our world. And so as we engage with these stories, literally these small stories or these metaphors take us to another world. They take us to another place that's invaded by the kingdom of God. Now, this is part of the reason why Jesus' parables are both simply worded, but they're often cryptic in terms of their meaning. In this way, the parables become the kind of teaching where the medium is actually a part of the message. There's these simple stories with simple invitations that go out to everyone, but at the same time, they have these cryptic meanings behind them because they represent something that is bigger than just this world that we engage in. They represent a new world that's characterized by the kingdom of God, and it's given to us as a heavenly understanding that really only can be given to us by God himself. And so the call of the parables goes out to anyone who would hear it in this way. But as, they, as we're going to see in our main parable today, there's a difference between hearing the parables and actually understanding them. And there's actually a difference between even understanding them and living them out in our lives. And this is true in general about God's word uh, anyway, right? I think throughout the Bible, what we see is that as human beings engage with God's word, there's a difference between hearing God's word and then understanding God's word. 
And then there's even a difference between understanding God's word and actually allowing that to be something that changes our lives in such a way that we live it out. This has been a struggle from the very beginning. If you think about the very first human beings, Adam and Eve, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, what we see is that there wasn't a lack of hearing God's word. We know this because when Eve was tempted by the serpent, she actually repeats the very words that God had told them. So she obviously heard the words. It wasn't a lack of understanding because they understood the implications of what would happen if they disobeyed God. Eve actually says that to the serpent as well. She says, this is what God told us would happen if we disobeyed. The problem was that, the problem in the end is that they decided not to act on what they already knew and understood. As we go a little later into the Old Testament, what we see is the same thing was true about the Israelites. They heard God's word. They knew God's word. They memorized God's word. They practiced God's word. They had the the law around them at all times. They memorized God's word. They taught each other God's word in their homes. And as they gathered for worship as an everyday part of life, it was a part of their national identity. Everywhere they went, God's law and God's words were present. They heard it. They understood it. But their failure was in living it out faithfully. That's why Isaiah says, and Jesus will actually quote Isaiah today in today's uh, parable that we're going to look at from Matthew 13, that they hear, but they don't really hear and understand. All of which begs the question, how much of God's word do we hear? How much of what we hear do we actually understand? And how much of what we understand do we really understand at a heart level in a way in which it changes our lives and it changes our perspectives, it changes our behavior? Before we, get, uh, before we get too far into this, though, we need to lay a little bit more groundwork about how we're going to be dealing with the parables of Jesus through this series. And there are two main things that we need to understand as we start off. The first is a general understanding of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as it's often described in the parables. Both kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven mean the same thing, especially in reference to the parables. I think it's essential to know that the parables are describing the kingdom of God. We'll actually see Jesus in many of the parables say, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he launches into a parable. In other words, he introduces the parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. So the purpose of this parable, in other words, is to tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like and to invite us to engage further into the kingdom. Now the parables in their various forms then serve as an invitation to be a part of the kingdom of God and to step further and more meaningful into what it means to live in and from the kingdom. So that no matter where we're at in reference to the kingdom, no matter where we're at in reference to God, these are invitations for us to step more meaningfully and more committedly into the kingdom. This is what the parables are all about. So with that being said, I think one of the first things that we need to answer is, what exactly is the kingdom of God? We use this phrase a lot. You may see it happen a lot in the Bible as you're reading, but do you know exactly what it means? What exactly are we talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God? Now, on the one hand, that's a really big question to answer. You could say the entire Bible is about the kingdom of God, and certainly we're going to get into, as we get further into this series, we're going to be able to flush out more of an understanding of what the kingdom is. But I think there's three things that we need to understand in reference to the parables as we start out here this morning. The first one is this, is that the kingdom of God is best understood as the rule and the reign of God. What this means is that where the kingdom is, the kingdom is wherever God dwells as king. Now, we just came out of the book of Revelation where we saw and we know that one day for eternity, the ki- and one day and for eternity, the kingdom of God will exist over all creation. 
In the new heavens and the new earth, that is the eternal state. That there won't be a place in creation, in the visible, uh, tangible creation that we live in, where the kingdom of God won't be ruling in some way. The presence of God will be here, and the complete rule of God will be over all of creation in the eternal state. But we also know that until that time, in this life, right, the rule of God's reign is partial. We could say it was inaugurated in Jesus' ministry. In fact, that's a big part and a big purpose behind the parables. As Jesus is announcing, his, is announcing the inauguration of the kingdom with his ministry, he is using the parables to explain that. He's using the parables to explain the fact that his, his ministry has inaugurated the kingdom on earth. And so when we see Jesus do things like teaching and healing and defeating evil and even teaching these parables, this is evidence that the kingdom has been inaugurated in this world. Now, as Jesus ascends, of course, resurrects and ascends, and then he sends his spirit on the church, now God's kingdom primarily reigns through his body, the church, on the earth, and by his spirit. So that means the church, the body of Christ, as we live here as God's people, indwelt by his spirit, is the actual rule and reign of the kingdom of God in the present day that we live. Now, that doesn't mean that the church itself is the kingdom, but it does mean that the, the, the body of Christ, God's people, um, are representatives of the kingdom in the world. So the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. Secondly, the kingdom of God is both already and not yet. You know, since we can say that, of course, the kingdom is here in some ways, but not in every way, it is both already here and, not, and also not completely here yet. It is both present and future. We see it in a limited form now, and we'll see it in the fullness in the future. Another way of saying this is that while the kingdom of God was inaugurated in Jesus' first coming, it will be consummated in Jesus' second coming for eternity. And we live in that time of the already not yet right now. And then third, third thing we want to know as we begin this series is that the kingdom of God is available to everyone. More specifically, we should say that the invitation to join the kingdom goes out to everyone. And this is a big point in the parables. That these parables, both when Jesus originally taught them 2,000 years ago, and as we engage with them here even this morning, serve as invitations to anyone who would respond. The ability to be a part of the kingdom means being born again through the saving work of Jesus alone, but that invitation goes out to everyone who would hear it and who would respond. So, now that we've addressed the question of the kingdom of God, the second question we need to ask is, what exactly is a parable? Now, that's a question that might seem really simple, but it's maybe not as simple as it seems at first. The, 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 word, the English word parable actually comes from the ancient Greek word parabole. And in the ancient Greek, that word was used as an umbrella term that could refer to all kinds of different communications, from things like short stories all the way to, you know, metaphorical proverbial sayings, even to riddles. Okay, so it was used to describe a whole bunch of different types of communication. In the, in the Gospels, we see that there are about 40 different parables that Jesus teaches during his ministry. And we see a wide variety of those types of communications, all the way from we've got short stories that involve, you know, different characters and different scenes more developed, things like the prodigal of the, or the parable of the prodigal son, things like the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Different characters, different scenes, maybe even different teaching points, all the way to kind of more proverbial one-liner or two-liner parables that seem more like biblical, uh, biblical proverbs, right, that use metaphorical sayings, maybe that just have one direct point to them. 
But in all of this, no matter what form they take, the, for, the force of parabolas and the purpose of parabolas is, has one thing in common, that they invite the hearer to engage with what is being taught. In other words, there is a meaning below the surface. In, in, in all these parables, the, the, the surface, the meaning is not necessarily just resting on the surface. It invites instead the hearer to engage with it so that they could understand more about what's going on beneath the surface. Whether it's a simple metaphor that points to something else, or again, it's a longer short story that has, that has a, a kind of an invitation to engage with the story in terms of what it ulti- its ultimate meaning is all about. And so as Jesus is teaching this, he is teaching these simple stories, but inviting those who would hear it to engage with what he is saying about this kingdom reality. That was the goal of Jesus' parables, and that's the goal of this series as well. To invite everyone who would hear it to, to take a step further into understanding what the kingdom is all about, no matter where we're at in reference to God. So as we start this series then, we're going to begin this week by looking at the chapter in the Bible really where this all starts. It's Matthew chapter 13, so you can turn there. We're going to look at the first half of Matthew chapter 13 this morning. And this is not necessarily the first place where Jesus uses parables, but it's often understood as the place where Jesus begins to really rely on parables to teach about the kingdom. In fact, we're going to see an introduction to what the parables are all about. Jesus explains in his own words why it is that he teaches in parables. And then we're also going to see the text of, the par- of what is known as the parable about the parables, which is the parable of the sower. The parable that tells us about how the parables work in our lives. Okay? So with that in mind, we're going to look at the first part of Matthew chapter 13 in verses 1 through 9. And it says this in Matthew 13. That same day, Jesus went out to the house and sat out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and he sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. But since they had no depth of soil, um, but when the sun rose, they were, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, this is, only, this is one of only two parables where Jesus provides a detailed interpretation of the parable after he teaches it. And we're going to get to that in the next section, so we'll talk about interpretation here in a minute. But before we get to the meaning of this parable, let's talk a little bit about the setting. Matthew tells us that it, when Jesus tells this parable in particular, he uses the phrase, that same day at the very beginning. And that same day is more than just a time indicator. It actually is a connecting clause that connects us back to kind of the previous things that had been happening that day. And if you look back in Matthew chapter 12, what you'll see is all that has happened in the, uh, uh, in the, in the previous part of the day before all of this goes down at the Sea of Galilee. And what we see, there's a lot in Matthew 12. We won't go through the whole thing. But what we see are really two points that emerge out of Matthew chapter 12. The first one is that Jesus' authority as king, who has brought the kingdom of God, is made evident here. 
And you see that with Jesus setting himself up as the judge of God's law in Matthew chapter 12, where he talks about the Sabbath and what the Sabbath is all about. You see it through a a physical healing that he performs. You see it through fulfilling Old Testament prophecy as the coming Messiah. We see it through the spiritual healing of a demon-possessed man, which happens in Matthew 12. You see it through him judging the religious leaders of Israel in a confrontation that he has with them. And then finally, in that part, he predicts his own death and resurrection. So you got this picture then of what happens when King Jesus brings the kingdom of God into the world. All of these things begin to happen. Teaching and and an understanding of fulfillment of God's law and then healing spiritually, healing physically. Jesus judging the religious leaders and then this prediction of his death and resurrection. All these things take place there in Matthew chapter 12. That's the first part of this. The second part of this is a small little piece that happens at the end of Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus looks to his disciples and essentially says to them, this is the effect that the kingdom has on you. It draws you together with me in relationship in such a way that we are considered family. Right? He, he says to them, the ones who follow, who follow my father's will are my brothers and sisters. And so the effect of the kingdom among his disciples is to draw them together in relationship to be with Jesus. Now all of that is in the background as Matthew develops the narrative of what happens next in Matthew chapter 13. And as we get back to Matthew chapter 13, what we're told is that on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, these crowds have started to form around Jesus. Likely these were the crowds who saw Jesus performing miracles and saw him confronting right the religious leaders because what what draws a crowd quite like you know quite like miracles and public you know, controversies with religious leaders, right? And so the crowds see this, and they begin to sense that there's something about this Jesus. And whether they're there for the show, or whether they're there to just kind of figure out who Jesus is, or whether they're just there to see if there's going to be even more controversy, or whatever it may be, they show up on the shore, and there are crowds of people who are following Jesus. And Jesus does something that's kind of strange, kind of unexpected. He puts distance, a physical distance, a physical barrier between him and those crowds who are following him. He jumps in a boat, and he, wades, and, he, and he pushes the boat off the shore so that he's some distance away from the shore, leaving the crowds behind on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he gets in that boat with his 12 disciples, and they're sitting there, and this is where he teaches the parable from. And so if you can imagine the scene, Jesus is standing on a boat, a few yards, maybe several yards off from the shore. The crowds are gathered on the shore, and his 12 disciples are around with him in the boat as he tells the parable of the sower. Now again, we're going to get to Jesus' interpretation in just a couple minutes of this parable, but for now, what we need to know that as Jesus teaches this parable, he says there's a sower, a farmer who throws out seed. And he throws out seed in kind of this broadcast manner, which means he just throws it everywhere, kind of indiscriminately all over his property. And the seed falls on all of these different areas of his property. The same sower, the same seed under the same conditions at the same time, throws the seed out. And the tension that's created here in the parable is that that same seed uh, produces four different results. Now, as we dive into this a little bit more, what we realize is that it's those four soils that Jesus described that actually produces these four different results. Again, same sower, same seed, same condition, four different results. And so the tension is in the contrast and the comparison of the different types of soil. And it's in that where Jesus, in verse 10, we pick up in Matthew chapter 13. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. 
For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, their case, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and they did not see it. To hear what you hear, and yet they did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Indeed, he bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now in this chapter, as it plays out, keeping straight who Jesus is actually addressing and talking to is really critically important. In the first part, when he tells the original story of the parable of the sower, he's talking to both the crowds who are on the shore as well as the disciples who are on the boat. This last section that we read where Jesus talks about the reason why he tells parables and then the interpretation of the parable of the sower, he is just talking to the disciples who are in the boat. He's having a private conversation with them and he's doing this deliberately. And we'll see, and we'll see what that is and we'll see why that is here in a minute. But the whole discourse from Jesus begins with a question from the disciples. Them asking, why is it that you teach in parables? In other words, why do you teach the crowds in these kind of cryptic messages? Don't you know that sometimes it may be hard for them to understand the symbols and the interpretations of the symbols that you're talking? Why don't you just talk to them in plain language? And I think this dialogue throws a bit of a wrench into, the, into this notion that we may often think the parables are about. We often think the parables are kind of just about, well, Jesus is explaining by way of illustration or story so that everyone can better understand what he's trying to teach. And that's true for one group of people. But Jesus says there are actually two, group of pe- two groups of people. For those who understand the kingdom, for those who have been given understanding, as he puts it, right, this does help them understand more about the kingdom. But for those who don't understand the kingdom or don't want to understand the kingdom, it actually confuses them. It actually cloud, has the effect of clouding their understanding. And so this whole, interpret, this whole understanding of why Jesus teaches parables this way throws a bit of a wrench into the notion that, uh, the, the wrench into that notion that the parables are just so that we can better understand the kingdom. The parables in this way actually have a way of revealing the hearts of people as Jesus puts them out there. That's really their main function. And as a disciple's question likely comes from a good place, again, the disciples are just, they're excited about Jesus, they're excited about his ministry, they're excited about this good news of the kingdom, and it probably comes from a good place where they're saying, well, we're excited about it, and so why, 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 would you, why don't you just communicate the good news to everybody so that they can fully understand what we're so excited about? 
And Jesus basically says to them, look, the fact that you're excited about it is evidence of the fact that you understand. But let me tell you this, those who are on the shore, the crowds who are hearing that, their hearts are far from understanding. And again, remember, as Jesus explains this to them, he's standing in a boat with the twelve, right? He's having a private conversation with the disciples, and there's a physical barrier between him and the crowds who are on the shore. And this physical barrier, I think, is more than just Jesus getting some breathing room away from the crowds because they're surrounding him and he's feeling hassled and he wants to just get away from it all. He's actually physically representing a spiritual reality that is going on between the true groups of people. Those who are literally in the boat with him and have understanding and those who are separated from him on the shore, spiritually as they are, physically in that setting. And of course, with that kind of response from Jesus, the disciples would be wondering probably exactly what we would be wondering in that situation. What's the difference between those who hear and understand, those who are in the boat, and the core difference between those who are on the shore, who are, who are separated from the boat? Now, Jesus seems to anticipate that question, and it's his explanation in the par- to the parable, of the parable, that actually answers that question for the disciples. The sower, and the tension point again in the parable of the sower forces us to compare and to contrast these different soils that represent the hearts of the people who receive this word that comes from Jesus, right? So again, the sower is the same. In this case, the sower can be understood as Jesus. He throws out the seed, which he identifies as the word of the kingdom, and then that seed falls on four different types of soils or four different types of hearts that, are rep- that represent the people who hear the word that goes out. And as we look at how Jesus interprets the parable for us, I think it's important to consider what everyday examples of this might look like. In fact, what I mean by that is that uh, a lot of biblical scholars believe that the reason that Jesus used these four different types of soils is because they represent the four different types of reactions that he actually got to his ministry and his preaching during his time. And so I want to explore how Jesus in, interprets each one of these soils and then compare them to what, to what that might have looked like during Jesus' time as far as the groups of people who were, the, who were responding this way. So as Jesus explains, the first type of soil is the path, right? For the farmer who's throwing out seed into his field everywhere, he understands that the path is not the place where he expects any crop to grow, right? It's the hardened path that you walk on. It's not actually technically part of the harvest field, but, it, but sometimes when you're just throwing seed everywhere, it falls on the path. And of course, sure enough, the soil represents this heart of a person who does not receive the word of the kingdom at all. Even what they hear, even what they may happen to hear, is stolen away by the birds, which represents Satan and kind of his influence in the world. And so it's taken away before it can even do anything to their hearts. And as Jesus described the first soil, he might have had in mind those who opposed his ministry from the outset. Many of those who were either from the Jewish religious establishment or the Roman government, these were the ones who opposed Jesus from the beginning. These were the ones who, in the end, had a direct hand in putting Jesus to death. They were his opponents from the very beginning. A second soil is the rocky ground that receives the seed and actually begins to grow a crop, but dies after some time because it has no root. And so the soil represents a person who receives the message of the kingdom, and they, additionally, uh, and they initially have kind of a joyful or even an enthusiastic reaction to receiving God's word. But this joy is mere emotion in the end, and the superficial commitment and the superficial understanding eventually gives way to persecution and trouble and difficulty in the world. 
Because it's not rooted in anything deeper probably than the circumstances or the emotion that they feel. As soon as difficulty comes or as soon as things don't work out the way that they anticipated it would work out when they began to follow Jesus, then their faith quickly falls away. Now, when I think about the second soil, I think sometimes about monsoon weeds. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like when we get monsoons here in the summer, uh, especially when, you know, you get a hard rain for like three or four hours, and you go back in your backyard maybe a day or two later, and all of a sudden all these weeds pop up. There was nothing there before, and all of a sudden there's a weed that's like two feet tall, and it literally just grew up overnight. Like where in the world did that come from? Right, well, if you know monsoon weeds, right, they look like they're pretty substantial, but if you go to ever pull one, you know that their roots only go probably about that deep, right? And so all you have to do is put a little pressure on them, and they come out pretty easily. That's kind of the picture of what this looks like, is that on the, on the surface level, right, everything looks great. There's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm and exuberance that pops up immediately, almost overnight. But in the end, all it takes is a little bit of pressure to uproot that faith because there really is no substantial root behind it. And so the second soil, that's what, that which falls on the rocky soil, is a response to Jesus' ministry that's often identified with the crowds of the people who follow Jesus. A primary example would be like the crowds that were on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Again, it's clear that Jesus makes a distinction between those and his disciples, but in the, in the crowds, they were following Jesus with joy and exuberance, probably because they saw Jesus was a popular miracle worker and teacher. They wanted a piece of that, a piece of what Jesus did rather than what Jesus was actually pointing them to, which was fellowship with him in the kingdom of God. Now, when he talked about some of the harder things, like following him into suffering and persecution and picking up your cross and following him and talking about the fact that he would ultimately die on the cross, that's when many of those who were in the crowds began to thin out. That's when many of those who were in the crowd began to thin out because it wasn't the type of thing that they had banked upon. The third soil is the soil full of thorns that also receives the seed at first and apparently begins to grow a crop as well. Now the plant seems to be doing well until the thorns choke out and overtake it so that it doesn't have what it needs to survive and most notably it doesn't get to, and most importantly, it doesn't get to a place where it actually bears any fruit. There might be a crop that pops up and it looks like it's about to bear fruit, but it doesn't actually bear fruit in the end. And of course, for the farmer, the only thing that matters is that the crop bears fruit. Not that it has leaves, not that it's a plant, but in the end, that during harvest time, it actually has some kind of a fruit or some kind of a crop to pull from. In this third soil, over time, what happens is that those who, are in this, those who come from the soil show that they love the things of the world more than they love the kingdom. So the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, the temptations of this world overtake their faith and they actually end up loving the world more than they love the kingdom in the end. And their faith seems to be based then on what God can give them in this world rather than how Jesus invites them into the kingdom and they can gain more of the kingdom. For a representation of the third soil, scholars often point to one person in particular and that's Judas Iscariot. Of course, the name Judas is often synonymous even in pop culture with the, the worst traitor in, in human history. But Jesus, Judas was the ultimate traitor primarily because he followed Jesus so closely and, so, and for so long. I mean, think about Judas and his following of Jesus. Judas was with Jesus for his entire earthly ministry up until the last night before Jesus was arrested and crucified. 
He was there in the boat in Matthew chapter 13. He stuck by Jesus' side as Jesus started to talk about suffering and all that would come with it. And as the crowds began to dissipate, and as even the disciples around the twelve began to abandon Jesus, Judas was still there among the twelve, even in the place of the upper room till that very last night. And what we see in the end is that Judas was still there till the end, which makes his betrayal even more scandalous. That he was so close to Jesus for such a long time, all the way almost until the end. In fact, an outsider might look at Judas and say, that's one of Jesus' favored people. Look at how closely and how faithfully Judas is one of the twelve in following Jesus. In the end, though, we know him as the most despicable traitor in history, because he sold out Jesus in the end for just a little bit of money. Now, I think as we think about this, right, we tend to think about the fact that Judas is in this place where he sold out Jesus because he wanted the money. I think in a lot of ways, Judas's betrayal started a lot earlier before that, and it's a lot more complicated than that, but we'll get to that in a minute. The fourth soil is described by Jesus as the good soil. And this soil is the one that receives the seed, the word of the kingdom, and it produces not only a crop, but it's the only soil that produces life and fruit in the end. It produces different kinds of fruit, different measures of fruit, but in the end, it's the, only, it's the only soil of the four that actually produces life and fruit out of the seed. Jesus said that it's th- this, this is the only soil that represents a person who understands the words of the kingdom. And because of that understanding, this is the only soil that bears fruit and survives the persecution of this world, the difficulty of this world, the temptation, the cares of this world, and really presses into the kingdom as its primary treasure. This fourth soil, which is the good soil, of course, represents the disciples during Jesus' day, at least the ones who stayed faithful to Jesus by the end. Right? And I say by the end because there were a few shaky moments with the disciples, weren't there? Think about Peter's denial of Jesus. Think about the disciples who abandoned Jesus during his crucifixion. How about Thomas doubting Jesus after his resurrection? I mean, the the fourth soil is full of all of these disciples who weren't perfect by any means. They failed in many ways. They doubted Jesus in some ways. They they were fearful in a lot of ways, which led them to flee from Jesus' presence at his time of need. But by the time the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, after Jesus' ascension, All of these disciples and a hundred others of them were there in that upper room in Jerusalem as the original church when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday is what we celebrate today, actually. And so they showed fruit and they produced fruit at different levels. But as it says in this parable, they produced fruit in the end. And what the fourth soil people have in common is that they were with Jesus. This reminds me of another parable, one that Brent referred to last week, the parable of the vine and the branches. We produce fruit not because we're more intelligent, more faithful, more spiritual, more whatever it may be. We produce fruit namely because we are with Jesus and we abide with Jesus. And the evidence that we abide with Jesus is that fruit and life comes out of our lives in that way. And so, In the end, the fourth soil people are the ones who remain in Jesus and abide with Jesus. Now, this is probably not your first time hearing the explanation of the four soils, right? Or hearing the parable of the sower. But even if it is, these descriptions probably aren't very shocking to us. We all know that there's a difference in the way that people respond to the Bible. 
There's all kinds of different ways that different individuals respond to the invitation of the good news of the kingdom, to the gospel of Jesus. But the question at the heart of this all is, is really the question that gets to the main point. How do we, why is it that people respond so differently? Right, we can see that people do respond differently to God's word, but why is it? What is it that causes people to respond differently to the word as it goes out? I think that's the point of all this, and that's the main challenge that Jesus is giving to each of us as we hear it and as we talk about it even today. The main point is getting to a place where we search our own hearts to see what kind of soil is in here. How is it that I'm receiving God's word? Am I hearing? Am I understanding? Does my understanding lead to life change? Does it lead to a way in which my, uh, my desires, my hopes, the way that I live is grounded in the treasure of Jesus as my King and Savior and as the kingdom as my one possession? Well, I think while examples of Jesus' ministry can be helpful for us as we look to apply this to our own lives today, let's talk about maybe a, a few modern-day examples as we close here this morning. To begin with, let's talk about the four soils in reference to what they mean for us. I think when we look in our world, we see the first soil is pretty apparent in our world today as things like secularism and a corresponding rejection of Christianity is on the rise everywhere around us, right? The reaction of secularism characterizes God's word as myth and religion itself of any kind as foolishness and in some cases even hostility. And so you'll see secular reactions to us and we see this increasingly around us uh, as responses of hostility towards people of faith. And what many secularists, of course, don't realize is that secularism itself is a kind of religion and worldview that was not all that different than the first century pagan religions and philosophies that those around Jesus' time believed in, who rejected his word during that time. Now, in reality, there are a lot of people who demonstrate this kind of soil and their response to Jesus and their response to Christianity and their response to God's word all over the place in our world. And these are the people that we largely don't see in church, right, for obvious reasons, because they just reject it out of hand. But it's the second, third, and fourth soils that get a little bit more complicated to discern, because these, these are the three soils from which uh, we get people who say that they are Christians, right? You'll see this. That doesn't mean that everybody in these soils would say that they're Christians, but those who say that they're Christians come from one of these three types of soil. And one of the ways to identify the second soil is as the soil of the crowds. And what I would, what I would say, the way this looks like in our, our current uh, culture is that it can be classified by what we might call secular Christianity, or what sociologist Christian Smith coined several years ago as moralistic therapeutic deism. Just this big theological phrase, I don't know if you have heard this phrase before, but it's essentially what Christian Smith started seeing back in 2005, he wrote a book about what he started to begin to see in the American church. This belief in moralistic therapeutic deism, which means that we believe that morals are important. We believe that the most important thing in life, the therapeutic piece, is that we are happy and we feel good about ourselves. And then deism refers to a belief that God exists, but he's distant. He's not really personal. He doesn't really, he doesn't really uh, have a lot to do with our lives. He doesn't really exercise any kind of personal authority in our lives. He's distant and he's kind of far away from us. He exists, but he exists kind of in a depersonalized, distant way. Now, that's a big theological title, I think, that really just describes what we see Jesus talking about as he refers to the crowds from Matthew chapter 13. 
So this belief is not anti-Christian. It's not anti-religion. In fact, this kind of belief and worldview, which is, by the way, George Barna this year said that this is, this is the most dominant worldview in America today. Moralistic therapeutic deism. But this worldview actually welcomes religious values, and a majority of people who are MTD people would actually call themselves Christians. They go to church, they may even serve in church, and uh, they may be even be involved at some level. For others, right, they would call themselves Christians, and maybe they just attend church kind of spirit, uh, sporadically throughout the year, maybe on Christmas, Easter, that kind of thing. But researcher George Barry again, characterizes this belief this way. He says, Practitioners of moralistic, therapeutic deism are not anti-religion or anti-Christianity. They are just not willing to surrender themselves to authentic Christianity's demands or to believe that a real faith would even make such demands of them. Barna says they they also typically believe a handful of things about their Christianity, which he actually calls fake Christianity. I would agree with him in that assessment. He says, one, and see if any of these sound familiar to you. One, Belief in a God who remains distant from people's lives. He's not a personal God, doesn't want to interfere, doesn't want to be too pushy in our lives. He's just kind of distant. He's just out there if we need him. Secondly, people are supposed to be good to each other, right? Morals are important. Values are important. Third, the universal purpose of life is being happy and feeling good about oneself. Fourth, there are no absolute moral truths. Fifth, God allows good people into heaven. So anybody who seems to be good, whatever that means, uh, those are the people who get to go to heaven. There's no need for kind of uh, Jesus's, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, or any repentance or anything like that. It's just the good people get to heaven. And then finally, God places very limited demands on people. Now, I think this is a pretty accurate characterization of the modern day crowds that were represented during Jesus's ministry. Again, they're not anti-religion, they're not anti-Christianity, but they aren't really biblical Christians either. They just want, in the end, a belief system that makes them happy, and, and, and as long as they, what they believe works for them, that's all that really matters. They don't want a God that's too close or too intrusive or claims to have authority over their lives since their ultimate goal is just to be happy in the way that they may define it. If they can use God or the church to make themselves feel better, they'll happily do that as a part of their belief system. But they often struggle with the demands of Jesus when Jesus calls them to die to self, when Jesus calls them to repent, when Jesus calls them to acknowledge sin and their need for forgiveness and salvation. And if they ever feel like God or religion isn't working or making them happy or helping them to live their best life, they'll happily just move on to another church or another teacher or another religion. Now, the third soil shares a lot in common with the second soil in that it uses Jesus to get something else. But the third soil might be even more dangerous today than the second soil is. You know, Jesus talks about the cares of the world in this soil being what ultimately is most important to this type of person. And what that means practically is that this person is more concerned about the cares and concerns of the world than they are about the kingdom of God. And because that's the case, ultimately what begins to happen is that instead of this person looking for more of the kingdom with Jesus and less of the world, giving up everything to follow Jesus, dying to self, dying to the things of this world to embrace the kingdom, they ultimately use Jesus and Christianity to root themselves more deeper in the world. And typically this takes form of an agenda where a person will follow Jesus, maybe use the leverage of Jesus to get what they ultimately want. Now, We might tend to think that Judas, again, was tempted just by that money that was given to him by the religious leaders. 
But as I said earlier, I think Judas's betrayal started a lot earlier than that ultimate moment. I think it was a lot more complicated. I think there was a point that Judas came to when he was following Jesus where he realized that Jesus' agenda was going to be different than his own. I think Judas had a similar agenda that the rest of the disciples may have had, at least at one point, and many of those who followed Jesus on the outskirts had. Believing that Jesus would be the kind of Messiah who would come and give political freedom to Israel, establish Israel again, overthrow the Romans, and give Israel back power. And Judas was hanging on with Jesus because he believed that if I'm in his inner circle, I'm going to get some of that power as well. When Jesus comes into his kingdom and reestablishes Israel, I'm going to get one of those nice cabinet seats. Even if it's just the Secretary of Transportation, at least I get to be there on the cabinet. And there's a moment, I think, that Judas began to realize that Jesus' agenda was not quite that because he began talking about dying to yourself, picking up your cross. He began talking about going and dying and being arrested and being crucified. He said things like, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And there was a point where Judas realized, okay, my agenda is totally different than what Jesus is taking us to. And so there was a point in his life where he had to decide, am I going to go with Jesus' agenda or am I going to go with my own? And I think that was the decision at some point that Judas made. And the outflow of that began and ended in the place where he sold Jesus out for what he could get. I think he thought to himself, well, I might as well get what I can and get out of this. And so they'll give me a little bit of silver and I'll be on my way. But in the end, Jesus, or Judas was always about using his connection with Jesus for something else, for his own agenda. And this kind of belief still exists today, although many people would never admit it. They're often self-deceived about this. I think a prime example of this is the prosperity gospel in America that's taken root, that attempts to use Jesus as a way to get more of the world, more of the stuff, more of the wealth, more of the health, more of the well-being, whatever it may be, and all of those things. One of the most, on the most sinister end of the spectrum, this is where false teachers and fallen church leaders often emerge from, the third type of soil. People who look on every way on the outside like they are faithful and they serve God with these amazing gifts and they even may display what looks like a crop with fruit that's coming out of it until it's found out that that fruit is in fact counterfeit. And sadly, we've seen a lot of that going on in the church today with scandals, with abusive church leaders who spiritually and sexually abuse people in their churches, with church leaders who embezzle and steal money from the churches that they serve, all these kinds of things. And unfortunately, we have way too many of those people who use the church to get what they want, to satisfy their desire, their agenda, even if it's just for their own vanity and pride. Now, this is why I said the third soil might be the most dangerous, because it looks like the real thing until it isn't. It looks like the real thing until it's revealed for what it is, counterfeit fruit. And sometimes that happens in this life, in this world. Sometimes it won't happen until the final judgment, where those who will come before Jesus and will say, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he looks at them and says, away from me, I never knew you. That's why the third soil is so deceptive. Not only does it deceive others, but it is also self-deceptive in and of itself. Those who actually think they are doing the right things for God, like the religious leaders did end up being the ones who deceive themselves. So we've talked a lot about the soils this morning and all of those that characterize, especially those first three, that characterize all, I would say, those who are not in good soil, not, not, not true followers of Jesus. But I think we want to spend the rest of the time focusing really on the last few minutes we have here, focusing on the one that counts, which is the fourth soil. 
the one that characterizes those who are a part of the kingdom, the one that characterizes those who are with Jesus. Now, the first three soils are useful in contrasting with the fourth soil, right, what they might look like, but the fourth soil is really the place that we want to rest and understand. This is where all of this comes together. And look, the reality is that those who are people of the fourth soil, their one desire in true Christian faith is gaining the kingdom of God and living more into the kingdom and ultimately getting to be with Jesus as their greatest joy. They're characterized by people who all that matters to them in this world is being in the boat with Jesus. That's all that matters to them in this world. Now, people in the fourth soil, again, they're not perfect. Just like Jesus' original disciples, they may doubt and fail and struggle in their faith. They may even get angry or disillusioned with God. They do sinful things and they say foolish things all the time. And they may miss the mark more than they actually hit it. But in the end, they are characterized by two things. They understand the gracious kingdom invitation by responding to Jesus in faith and repenting. They're willing to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. And secondly, they produce fruit simply because they are with Jesus and they remain in him. Even among the doubts and fears and failures of their lives. And just like when Jesus says in that parable, abide with me or you can produce nothing, but if you do abide with me, fruit will come. Evidence of their being with Jesus is the fruit that comes in their lives. Not because they're all, always more gifted or intelligent, but because they are with Jesus. And being with Jesus is their greatest desire, and they pursue the kingdom of God as their true home, even as they live in this world now. And because the kingdom is, a, a, is from another world, is of another world, they realize that it doesn't promise to them any of those things in this world. It doesn't promise wealth. It doesn't promise a good job or a happy family or a good marriage or kids who love you. It doesn't promise that you'll even have a spouse or kids in this life. It doesn't promise power or status or safety or even health. If you want more of this world, the kingdom of God is not the place to go find it. In the kingdom, what you, the only thing that you are ultimately promised is Jesus. But here's the secret to the kingdom, and this is what the disciples understood as they were in that boat. This is what Jesus points out to them, is that the only thing you get in the kingdom is Jesus, but you get Jesus. And when you get Jesus, that is infinitely more valuable than anything you could have in this world. That was the primary distinction between the disciples in the boat and those who were on the crowds on the beach. The crowds wanted Jesus for the power and whatever else they could give him, the show that they could give him, the miracles that he could perform on their behalf. Those in the boat who were with Jesus just wanted to be with Jesus because they loved Jesus. And it's natural to spend our lives and our attention on what we think and what we believe is best. I mean, that's part of being human, right? We treasure the things that we believe are most valuable. And that's a big part of the distinction between the crowds and the disciples. In the end, though, God is loving and God is just. And because God, because God will ultimately give us what we want. In the end, if we want a life in this world without God, God will let us choose that and pursue that. But if we want the kingdom instead, God will give us that instead. And he gives it to us through the salvation and the kingship of Jesus. Close with this. C.S. Lewis once, put, once said it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. 
As Jesus challenges us with this parable and all the parables that we're going to see throughout this series, in some form or fashion, it's going to come back to this question. Which one are you? Are you the one who says, God, your will be done? Or are you the one who says, I don't really, I'd rather have my will be done. And so God looks at you and says, fine, have your way. Have your will be done. Which soil in the end represents your heart? Let's pray. Lord, we ask this morning that you would give us more understanding into this. We know that as we grapple with the parables, one of the things that um, you tell us is that uh, we are called to seek understanding. This is about engaging with what you have taught us because it's for our own good. And Lord, we ask that as you apply this to our heart, as you awaken things in our, in our hearts and in our minds, maybe that we haven't thought about in a while or that we haven't thought honestly about, that you would graciously lead us according to your love for us. That we remember that you tell us the truth, again, because you love us. And that's a measure of your goodness towards us, is that you are a God who does not lie to us. You are a God who does not keep us in the dark. That if we want understanding, you tell us to seek understanding and you will give it to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding by your Spirit, even this morning. The parables of the soil strike right literally at the heart level. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see where it is that our heart rests. Which soil am I living from? And Lord, that you would give us the faith to take the step that we need to take to move further into your kingdom. To leave the things of this world behind that they would pale in comparison to the beauty that is in Jesus and to the promise that we have in his kingdom. What a beautiful thing to be able to say that we get to dwell with God in a creation, in a world that is completely ruled by the sovereignty, the goodness, and the righteousness of the God of the Bible. God who has created us, the God who knows what's best for us. We await that day even as we live today as kingdom people. Lord, would you help us to live more fully into that reality even as we wait for its full consummation one day. We pray all these things in the one who makes it true and the one who will bring it all to bear in the end. Jesus Christ. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Got a little too excited about the kingdom of God and lost track of time this morning. Um, so they're going to kill me over in the preschool ministry, so talk them down if they're upset back there. So by the time it gets to me, it's not too full-throated. Uh, but we love you guys. Have a great week and uh, be praying for VBS as it happens this week, guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.